Welcome again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the medical journal club podcast for anyone who's ever been really confused by the latest health study. I'm Matt Fox, professor of epidemiology and global health, and we are here in the Boston University Godly Studio. Today in our first segment, our Journal Club segment, we are going to talk about an interesting new paper that asks whether teaching primary school kids in Uganda to evaluate health claims, something that we care deeply about and is a major theme of this podcast, whether it has any impact on kids' knowledge, intended behaviors, and self-efficacy related to evaluating health claims. We'll dig into what that means. Then in our second segment, our deep dive segment, we'll talk about how we generalize from one study to larger populations. And then in our third segment, our amazing and amusing segment, we are going to talk about the things that grabbed our attention or just distracted us from our real jobs. But before we get into it, we want to take a second to remind you about Population Health Exchange, the Boston University School of Public Health's resource hub for lifelong learning. Find out more at www.populationhealthexchange.org, where you'll find this podcast as well as many other population health learning programs and tools. Now, let me introduce you to the team I am joined in the studio by Dr. Don Thea. Don, can you introduce yourself? Hi, Matt. Don Thea here. I'm a professor of global health in the Boston University School of Public Health. I'm an infectious disease doctor, and I've done uh, my research mostly in Africa and South Asia on HIV transmission and pneumonia. And I'm joined by Dr. Chris Gill. Chris. Hey, Matt. Um, sure. My name is Chris Gill. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Global Health. I'm a uh, infectious disease doctor by training and also have uh, spent most of my career studying HIV and respiratory pathogens and vaccines. And apparently bats. And apparently bats. So let's get into it. In segment one, we are going to take on a paper that was brought to our attention by what I can only refer to as our producer, because I don't know what else to call you, uh, Leslie Talalian, who uh, brought us a study which asked the question of whether teaching kids how to evaluate health claims makes them better consumers of health information. The article was published in The Lancet, and the title was The Effects of the Informed Health Choices Primary School Intervention on the Ability of Children in Uganda to Assess the Reliability of Claims About Treatment Effects, a Cluster Randomized Control Trial. So it's a design we haven't talked too much about before, so we'll get into that. Before we do, uh, I always give you the headlines, and this one really just need one to su- needed one to sum it up. So this was uh, the headline in Vox, and I'm I'm not. We have determined from the last podcast, I'm not allowed to uh, say the last word in full. So we will just uh, abbreviate and say this researcher may have discovered the antidote to health BS. All right, so. Uh, before we before we jump into the to the, the how we feel about it, Don, can you give us a, an overview of the study? What they did, what they found, and was it a was it a worthwhile study to do? Sure, thanks, Matt. Um, I really like this study. Yeah, I thought mm-hmm. this was this is one of the coolest studies that we have so far evaluated. Um, so th- this was a study that was done by uh, a group of researchers from um, Uganda and from Norway. And th- the purpose was, as Matt had mentioned, was to show that there is a primary school curriculum, which w- they devised, which could be taught to uh, fifth years who are kids that are around 10, 10 to 12 years old in Kampala over one semester that would have an effect on their ability to make um, decisions about health issues. And we know from having worked in developing countries as well as in the United States that um, health behavior is really a very, very important component in terms of population health. And our, our ability to affect how people 
evaluate the evidence that's at hand and make rational decisions about health is critically important. Nobody else has ever even considered addressing this issue with kids, uh, much less kids in an environment like Uganda. And these guys have, have done, I, I think, a really uh, fantastic job of putting together a highly complex study to try to address that. So what did they do? So this is a cluster randomized controlled trial, where, which means that, what the, that, that the intervention and the control is implemented in clusters. And those clusters are evenly divided between the intervention and control. And by clusters, um, what they did was that they chose schools randomly um, of the schools that were available in Kampala, Uganda, and they then divided them up into, as I said, intervention and control groups. And they, they would have this curriculum that they developed be taught by a teacher um, during the course of one semester in a particular school. And because they didn't want there to be an influence of a teacher teaching it and a teacher not teaching it in the same school because that would um, in, entail some, some difficulty and maybe some, some bleeding over of the effect. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, what they did is they had um, two or sometimes three teachers in a particular school teaching this curriculum. And the curriculum was um, essentially nine classes, 80 minutes each over the course of nine weeks. And the curriculum was devised to um, really convey 12 key concepts. Um, and there were things like um, treatment might be harmful. Um, widely used treatments or treatments that have been used for a long time are not necessarily beneficial or safe. Conflicting interests may result in misleading claims about the effects of treatments or evaluating the effects of treatments requires appropriate comparison. So in essence, what they were doing was they were teaching, almost teaching a public health course on how to evaluate science. Um, and they, they essentially it was this podcast. Yeah, yeah basically this podcast. Skepticism. What, what we're trying to get across in this podcast, but they they in, they, they they distilled it down into these very workable um, uh, uh, classes. Um, and then at the end of that, what they did is they gave these kids a multiple choice question questionnaire, and um, that that those questions were um, not a regurgitation of what they had learned, but it was really to take the lessons that they had learned and apply them to new situations. And then they graded those the results of those of those questions, and they got truly remarkable results. Um, Really, to boil it down, the mean scores between the control and the intervention group in terms of the number of those 24 questions that were correct were 43% in the controls um, got the answers correct versus 62% in the inter in the intervention group. Um, and it, when they when they determined whether the kids, based on the, the results of these examinations, had mastery of the material, which uh, means that they got 20 out of the 24 correct, only 1% of the children in the control groups had mastery of the material versus 19% in the, in the intervention group. Um, so it was, it was a remarkable demonstration that you could actually take these 10 to 12-year-old children in a place like Kampala and teach them enough fundaments, fundamentals of public health and scientific inquiry so that they could actually synthesize and use that information correctly. Yeah. Whether this results in a change in behavior is a whole other question, and that's not what the study was set up to address. But 
I've never seen a study like this, and and I would have predicted from the very beginning that they wouldn't be able to accomplish this. They would this. have failed. They would have failed. Yeah. But they, I think it was a rousing success. Yeah, Chris, yeah. Chris, give us your give us your take on. Uh, was this a good study? Was this yeah, well no, done? My my enthusiasm uh, is is similar to, to the, Don's. I the thought enthusi- this was enthusiasm cup runneth over. <laughs> it was clever. It was it was uh, it was a it was a brilliantly designed trial and and novel uh, and persuasive and um, and well executed. Well executed. Really, incredibly well executed. I I, yeah. I commend them. I mean, this is, I think, how many kids? 10,000 kids? Yeah, yeah. In 120 schools? I mean, that's... Uh, that's impressive, and, you know. And, 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 and fundamentally, what they're what they're trying to do is is ask, answer the question: Can you train scientific literacy and skepticism in school aged children? The answer turns out to be yes. You know, you can. It's uh, and and the 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 building blocks for that were not esoteric. They did not require a PhD in epidemiology or going to medical school. Ah, oh, there goes my job security. Unfortunately for us, but, uh, but it's the basic concepts that we in essence teach. Yes, it's. Oh true. yeah, no. So my favorite, my favorite one is uh, personal experiences or anecdotes are unreli- an unreliable basis for assessing the health the, the health effects of most treatments, which. We teach as, you know, that's the, the tyranny of the anecdote. Well, you, actually, you a... I, I met a guy who said that's not true. Oh, what is not true? He said what you just said is not true. What, what? And who was this guy? This, I met him on the subway. He seemed very reliable. Oh, real, real authority, I see. Authoritative so, he, voice. so this is somebody who believes that, that the, the, <laughs> the, plural of, the plural of anecdote is data? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> got it. Got it. I don't, uh, I don't subscribe to that theory. But overall, so you so so you see this one as a as a rousing success. Yeah, and it, it's um you know it gets to to some of our themes in this show, which is in this podcast, which is that you know science is tricky, and and just because science is not always right doesn't mean that it is wrong. It just means that you know one. <laughs> No, that's oh what, what we say. Thank you, know, you Yogi Berra. It's, it's not always right, but the fact that it's not always right doesn't mean it's always wrong. Right. And, and you right. have to be an informed, cautious, skeptical, thinking consumer to make sense of this. And in fact, and this is the beautiful point of it, is that that the skills that you need to become an informed, thoughtful, skeptical you know, consumer of science are not particularly esoteric and can be taught. Yep. And a lot of it comes down to common sense. I, I just loved it. No, exactly. And I think that that's how we, to a certain extent, consider public health. It's applied common sense. That's what we're. Yeah, that's what these guys were being I would, taught. I would like to think it's a little. little well, come on, oh, a yes, little it is. more than it's, that. It's, it's I would a, love it to be so. It's rigorously applied common rigorously sense. Rigorously applied common sense. But it's common sense. Why you're giving away all our secrets here? We're not going to have jobs after this. All right. Um, let me give. Let me. Let me give a, a slightly skeptical take then, because I. I there were some flaws. There. There we are need some. To talk about. There are some limitations. There are some flaws, and I. Share your enthusiasm. I thought it was a great study. I, I really commend these authors. I mean, this is, this is, um, you know, something that is that that took a lot of uh, effort to design this curriculum, to implement it, to, to train the teachers. Um, so there is this concept that economists have gotten into lately. Where uh, have you heard about the the randomistas? Mm, yes. yes, the randomistas. This 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 is like the pejorative term that they use in the economics world for this love of randomized trials that has started to filter into the economics world from the the public health world. And the criticism stems largely from what I can tell around two things. One is ethics. Is it ethical to do a randomized trial of something that you know is good for people? So let's say, for example, we want to do it. Let's say we decide that we're going to do a randomized trial, which is all the rage now of of conditional cash transfers, right? We're going to give people money in exchange for some health behavior. Well, it's always a good idea. I mean, how can it be harmful to give people money? 
there is some benefit there. So is it ethical to do a test of whether or not it can bring about other behaviors? That's not an issue here, I don't think, at all. But the, the, the second issue is the issue of whether or not the information that we get of randomized trials of behavioral interventions are in are we learning enough from the interventions because the effects of those interventions are very specific to the population in which they are being delivered and the way in which they are delivered. And so do we get enough out of this to learn that this is something we should be doing everywhere? Or is it really a function of if you have really energetic people, they can take this curriculum, give it to some really enthusiastic teachers and get them all excited and you'll get some benefits. But then when you walk away and you leave this program to to uh, people to implement on their own, maybe it sort of dies off and you don't get the benefits. So I, I don't know. I don't know. Do you, have, do you have thoughts on whether or not we should really be doing trials of, of behavioral interventions like this if they're not generalizable enough? Well, that was the, the first thing that popped into my mind as I was as reading this. Is like, why can't we do this here in, in Boston or, you know, or my hometown of Lincoln? Why can't we do the same uh, intervention and see where it leads? Um, my, but my, my skepticism is that... Uh, that we we are primed to fall into traps, and so even though we can sort of create a <laughs> physically, uh, physically, you know, I'd say um, you know cognitive Bear traps. traps. Uh, there was a a, uh, a famous uh, musician, um, 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 magician, not musician, magician called the Amazing Randy, uh, who was also part of the Skeptical Inquiry <laughs> movement. And amazing Randy. <laughs> and he got it. Hold on. He would do this uh, this demonstration of astrology uh, with university students at the University of Florida every year. And um, and I've actually adopted this in, in my, my course and taught it for several years, thinking the amazing Randy must be so good at like creating this effect that is just the unique Randy effect. But I have replicated this three times in a, in a row. And the, the modification that I made from the original Randy experiment was I'd said, you know, students, little do you know, but I used to be, you know, I used to make money in college by making a custom-made astrology, uh, zodiac, you know, forecasts. For, no one is surprised. Um, this is not true, however, but uh -huh, I would say sure this. Sure it isn't. And so, uh, and I'd say, you know, and then I went and spoke to the registrar and I got all your, your birth dates and I have created personal um, forecasts based on your, your, your zodiac sign for each member of the class. And then I hand them out with the names written on them. And I say, don't share it because it's very private. And then I say, I simply want you to rate it on a one through five scale with five being like you nailed it and one being, I don't know who this is about. Can I guess? You're crazy. Can I guess? And every year they score like a four and a half to a five and on can I guess? across the class. And then I say, take it and hand it to the person next to you. And it's the same. And everyone has exactly the same horoscope in the class. And so like this is a, a group of, of students who've been in Global Health uh, 702 where I've been trying to teach them skepticism and telling them that just because you hear something doesn't it. mean it's true. And this is now in week three and they fall right into the trap every yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh man, you know, that bumps me out that they're so easily fooled by this. And yet, I think you know, we need to call it the Randy Gill effect. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, get, so get, come, come, and your point being... Uh, my point being is that even though we do this, even though we do this, people are gullible. Even even though we do this, I I would I think the next step to, okay. to knowing where this is going uh, okay, is you are does going this good. actually lead them to distrust <laughs> things that they see we'll get there. We'll in get the there. media, the popular media, or 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 is it just like an effect on an exam? 
and 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 that I think is the is the key to what's missing here. And and it's it's the, it's not a it's not necessarily a criticism as Don points out. I mean, they you could be skeptical that they could even uh, that you could even translate this information to kids this age. And therefore, this is a, this is a important piece of information that we've learned that we've we've we are able to test to to successfully teach kids to have this skepticism. But the question that I had was, is this the right outcome? Is being able to pass an exam on what we've just taught you? It wasn't on what we've just taught you. It's on, on how, yeah. do you, how do you take that information, synthesize it, and apply it to similar but new situations? Mm-hmm. That, to me, I thought was, was different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I agree with you. But, but if you go to the – did you look in the, the web table? Yeah. Really? I did. I, I don't, don't have it. What does it say? Uh, so web table one. So this is in the, in the, they published their main tables in the study, but then they also published some, some findings online where they talk about the table, uh, of intended behavior. So the question is, think about an illness that you might get. Imagine someone claiming that a particular treatment might, might help you get better. How likely are you to find out what the claim was based on? For example, by asking the person making the claim and you can answer misking, I don't know, very likely, unlikely, likely, or very likely. And there was a 10% difference in how much they the intervention group would say they were likely or very likely to uh, to evaluate it, which is nice. It's important, but ten percent not that know, great. Sixty four percent compared to fifty five percent. I mean, you know, not clear. Other ones, you know, showed pretty. Other questions they asked were fairly. So you're similar. saying the magnitude of the effect is not as impressive as the final results indicate? Right. I think the final results you were talking about are, are, are the regurgitation. It's not, I agree with you. It's not hundred percent regurgitation, but it's sort of the, let's go over the same material in a different way, as opposed to what do you intend to do with this information? And you know, there's, you see less of an effect when you get to the, they ask self-efficacy questions. So how easy or difficult would you find each of these actions to be? So for example, assessing where I can find information about treatments that is based on research studies comparing treatments, and there was only a 3% difference between the groups. Um, assessing how sure I can be about the results of a research, treat, research study comparing treatments, and the intervention group actually was, was worse than the mm-hmm. group. So mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm not convinced yet that this translates into behavior, and I say that because, you know, when I sit down to watch TV, I intend to stop eating after three cookies, <laughs> but there's a Gilmore Girls marathon on. Come on, I eat the whole box. Yeah, no, and but so I, think, I think we would all agree with you, and I think that the uh, that about the, the Gilmore Girls, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> definitely not the Gilmore Girls. You would agree with me that you don't that, like Rory. That that these results that, okay. that it's, a, it's a bit of a stretch yeah. to uh, translate these results into changes in health behavior. But it's, a, but it's a good first step, and yes. that's what I think. And it was, yeah. it was a really, really so, well done so first step. So my take-home message is that for all of the anti-vaxxers, we should have, be having the pediatricians in Marin County in California be talking to the kids, not their mothers, about the fact that they need to get vaccinated. There you go. Well yeah. done. Yeah. And, did, so, and did you all look at the curriculum? I mean, it's really It is. Clever. It's, I thought it's it was really really good. impressive. Yeah. And there's a, there is actually a podcast that goes with it. In The Lancet, they actually published a cartoon uh, that shows you you should not... Uh, be sticking your fingers into poo. poop, uh, for lack of a better term, animal poop, generally speaking. Uh, and it, was elf, it was cow poop. Cow poop. There you go. Um, and then there was also a, uh, uh, a song. Did you listen to the song? I did not. I think it's... Uh, was it a rap song? If there's bias in your study and you know it, clap your hands. Oh, no, please. No, no. <laughs> I don't... Uh, I don't... It, we, we, you can go online and listen to it, but uh, it's quite a... It is. I wouldn't call it a rap song, but it's rap esque. 
Uh, I really liked it. Can I, uh, before we close, can I, can I tell you some interesting things I found about this study? Yeah, please. Okay. So, uh, under the, under the amazing, uh, category. So this study, if I understood correctly, this study was done in June of 2016, the actual implementation. And this study was published in July of 2017. I mean, that's a really fast turnaround from finishing your, your analysis, finishing your, your study, doing the analysis, writing it up and getting it into the published literature. And that's really impressive. Um, I was a little surprised. Something that surprised me is if I understood their sample size section correct, they said that they anticipated that 0% of kids in the control group would pass the exam in, in the absence of the intervention. They were expecting no kid would be able to pass this. That's a little harsh, isn't I it? I agree. In fact, it turned out to be, what, something like 27 or yeah. th- whatever. It was much higher than that. But, and that they powered the study to be, only de- to be able to detect a 10% difference. So hmm. you could, they could detect anything bigger than that, but nothing lower than 10%. But 10% seems to me, eh, if you only find a 10% difference, that's, that's really small for something where you're, you're going in and actively doing a, 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 a teaching intervention, and then you're, you're trying to determine whether or not they actually were successful. And then I put this one into the um, irony category. I think it's great that one of their claims, one, one of the things that they're teaching kids is that it's best to, when you're evaluating a study, that the study is a blinded study, meaning that the participants don't know which group they, whether they got the intervention or they got the control comparison. And of course, this is an unblinded study because it would be very hard to blind kids as to whether or not they got taught a particular curriculum. Now, you could teach them something else, I suppose. Um, But I just found that it amused me that that was... uh, Ironic, if you will. I think one of the other things that that I noticed that they that they uh, described was that um, they uh, they determined that it would have been four dollars a student mm-hmm. to um, put this curriculum into place, and that that has to be contrasted with the twenty nine dollars per student that yep. the entire health uh, education system spends in Kampala on primary education. So Absolutely. It's, it's a pretty hefty bill. That's a lot. That's a lot to ask, but I, I think it is a. A pretty impressive finding. So is it safe to assume that we all really like this study? Yes. We have some concerns about how we would uh, apply this to the rest of the world. But uh, generally speaking, well done. Yeah, no, definitely. It moves the needle. We liked it. I think, yeah. I think, I think it does. All right. Then with that, let's move on to our, our second segment, which is going to pick up on that exact theme. So what we want to talk about now is how we think about who the results of a study pertain to. It's a big uh, leap that we have to make when, when we get to the end of the results of the study and we determine that we think it's a pretty, pretty good study. Uh, how do we then figure out, does it apply to everyone? So the, the example I always use is I could do the best study in the world uh, that measured the effects of hormonal contraception for the prevention of pregnancy, and I could not apply those results to a population of men. Right? You'd think I was crazy if I tried to tell you about the effects of pre- pregnancy prevention in men. But that's an easy one. But what about in a, in a study like this? What do you look for to try and figure out who the results generalize to? And how do you draw those conclusions? So and let me, to start this off, Chris is looking skeptical, which, which tells me he didn't read my email, telling him this was the topic for the conversation. You sent so us an email? I think I might start with Don on this one. But let me, let me, let me just, just start <laughs> with the... Dodges that bullet. Yes. Oh. Honestly, it is like <laughs> running a daycare. So let me start. So, you said so there were going to be no pop quizzes. I was told there would be no math. 
So, so the study we just looked at, they, if you look at their uh, methods, they excluded, uh, it was a massive study, I mean, they went to schools all over, but what, schools that they didn't go to were schools that were difficult to access. Yeah. So they were harder, you know, the schools that were harder to physically get to. remote. Geographically remote. Um, does that, you know, when you start to think about exclusions like that, does that change the way you think about who this study applies to? More generally, can we apply these results? You know, do, these, do you think these rep- results apply to school kids in the U.S.? Don, what's your what's your yeah, take? Yeah, no, uh, Matt, it's 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 always it's always a tension. It's always a difficult um, balancing act between when you design a study, between designing a study that is going to be homogeneous enough so that you can have a meaningful effect, and generalizable enough so that if you find a meaningful effect, you can apply it to a population big enough so that it has some public health significance. So to answer your question, um, I, they, they did limit it. They excluded um, schools that contained expatriates. They excluded schools that had um, special needs programs. They excluded schools that they couldn't access that were very remote. But by the same time, they did include schools, they, they say, that were urban, peri-urban, and rural so they made an attempt to try to address the generalizability just in terms of population density. They also included schools that were both private and public. So they tried to do that also. Um, so so it, it, I, I think they, they made a reasonable attempt to address the issue of generalizability. And I think within that fairly large population, I would feel as if it was reasonable for those um, those results to be applied to those particular areas. Beyond that, it becomes a little bit more problematic. But then if you take that to the extreme, as has been our experience sometimes, where there are a number of studies that have been, been done, say, on male circumcision in various different countries. In for, va- in for? I'm sorry, for HIV transmission, heterosexual yep. transmission, yep. Um, in various different settings. Um, and we want to implement that in a country where that experiment was not done, where the, those trials were not done. And the Ministry of Health says it's not been done in our population. We need to do it. And in a situation like that, it, there's, there's, in my opinion, unnecessary expense, unnecessary difficulty and unnecessary delay in implementing something that we know works. Maybe that hasn't been tested in every single environment. So- it's, it's a difficult one to answer because there, there really are so many shades and nuances associated with it. Yes, and I would agree with everything you just said there. Chris, when you think about this, so are, there, are there things that you think about that you're looking for in particular when you think about generalization? In other words, is it, is it you know, I'm going to look at uh, you know, the age and, and sex distribution of this population or the socioeconomic status, or is it sort of every study you're kind of making up the criteria on your own when you're trying to figure out who these results actually apply to based on who they excluded or included in their study? Okay, so I'm now rubbing my bald spot because that's a toughie. I'm trying to think like, it's what, take what, you a while. what do I do? <laughs> we, have, uh, we have time. Uh, <laughs> yes, it's like rubbing the Buddha's belly, except um, much more satisfying. Um, Not for me. <laughs> you should try it. No. Uh, anyway. Going to sit that one out? Um, Hard pass. That, I, yeah, oof, I'm struggling. I don't know if I can give you a good answer for that. Um, I suppose I, I suppose I do it on a case-by-case basis, but... Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess looking at this one in particular, um, as I was reading this, I mean, one of the questions I had as I was going along is, I, I, gosh, I wonder why they chose to do it in Kampala, Uganda, because it seems that this is a, a sort of a universal problem that they're 
they're they're trying to focus on why why Africa why Kampala why sure. not South Africa why not Zambia why not Boston why? well they got to pick one place why not they got to start somewhere and they and it's funny because in this paper they don't really explain at length why they did that there's a one sentence blurb in there where where they say you know we did this because economically disadvantaged populations are more vulnerable if they invest resources in paying for interventions that are ineffective. So I guess that that would sort of make the case for for why a, a low resource setting. Um, but honestly, this is something that that's, uh, it'd be far more generalizable uh, than just low resource settings. Um, because I think the issue of investing resources and time and money at a individual level or a household level or a societal level is the same everywhere. I, I so I think you're right. I mean, if we're, we're talking specifically about the the intervention that we're we were just the study we were just talking about the health intervention, the health literacy intervention. Uh, I suspect you are 100 percent right that the this this could work just about anywhere. The question is, you know, would it work as well? Uh, that's what I think people are talking about when they talk about generalizability. It isn't, and and so to me, what what determines generalizability is. Uh, whether whether there are factors within which the effects vary. So in other words, in this case, they specifically wanted to, to ask the question, does this work overall? But then they said, does this work better for kids who are highly literate or, or, or have strong reading skills or I can't remember what exactly it was? Because if it did, it would say that there are certain populations in which you get a strong effect, certain populations in which you get a weak effect. You might think about you know, to investing in this differently. With drug studies, you know, you might find that the drug works better in men than women or in certain races than in others. And that would tell you that if you decide to move to another population, you may not get the same benefit. So when I think about generalizing, it isn't just that I can see, you know, it isn't a yes, no for me. It isn't like I would say, uh, we did this, this, this drug study in adults. It doesn't tell us anything about kids. It might tell us something about kids, but it, it doesn't tell us the whole story. When you start to looking at uh, studies that sort of are averaging across populations, you have a study where it's you know fifty percent men, fifty percent women. It's you know it's mixed race. It's it's all of those things. It just tells you we need to know more about whether these effects are the same across all those individual groups before I start to make claims about this works for everyone. All I know right now is on average this is how well it works. Uh, certain things translate better than others. So drug studies tend to tend to, to translate from one population to the next better than do behavioral studies because they're so... Mm -hmm. uh, driven uh, by the biology rather than they're driven sociology. By, driven by the... Right, the sociology and also the the way that they're delivered. So who delivers? So for example, this one, you know, I, one of the things we didn't touch on on the last uh, study we talked about is who is the intervention? Is the intervention for the kids or is the intervention the teacher? In which case the the, the effects of the intervention, obviously it's the kids who get the knowledge, but are the effects entirely dependent on how good the teacher is? And if the teacher is not very good, then you could take the exact same intervention in also in Uganda and find that that it's not as good. And you could you could figure that out because you could actually measure the effects by classroom sure. to try and figure out. And I would assume there's distributions as there are anywhere. Good teachers, you know, tend to be better with new things than than teachers who aren't as good. So, I, you know, generaliz generalization is a tricky, tricky subject, but it, to me, it, it, it really depends on the nature of the intervention as much as it does uh, the population who was in the, the study. Mm -hmm. You know, an interesting corollary of that is the concept of subgroup analyses. Mm -hmm. So if you do a randomized yeah. controlled trial of, of a drug and overall you find that that drug does not have an effect, but if you look at a subgroup 
of young men under the age of 25 or, you know, or African-Americans or a lot of times that will be, in some people's minds, sufficient evidence that, in fact, the intervention worked in that subgroup. And I think that that can be a, a real slippery slope. And we have to be careful to generalize from a subgroup a positive effect to the entire population or even the entire population of that subgroup. I agree. I also think yeah, one thing to be cautious about is subgroup subgroup analyses. So those are those are analyses in which I'm just looking at a subset of the population. I designed my study to look at the whole population. Uh, don't always pan out. Things that we find right. in those subgroups right. often turn out to be chance findings or right. or the odd finding. But mm-hmm. uh, but that mm-hmm. said, it's still important. I think to to be to be looking for those effects. It's hypothesis generating. Yeah, absolutely. I I think you're right. So I, one last point I want to make before about generalizability. So. I think when it comes to observational studies, so these studies where we don't actually control the intervention, uh, there I've expressed to you numerous times now that I don't always know what the question is, that that what the intervention is. And like with the the, the previous uh, podcast that we looked at, we talked about the, the uh, sugar substitutes. And I don't know what the question is because I don't know if the question is, you know, take these instead of, take these in addition to sugar. I don't, I don't know what the intervention is that you would recommend to somebody. And therefore, it becomes very hard to generalize because I don't know who the population that it's relevant to. But when it comes to trials, I think that we have the opposite problem, which it's is we, we have a very clear, clear question. But who does it apply to? Because the question is so focused. So people who sign up to be in randomized trials, we have this healthy bias effect where people who sign up for trials tend to be healthier on average than the typical person. And so the information we get doesn't necessarily apply to the really sick people who probably would benefit most from this particular drug. Uh, it's often a healthier population. And so we don't we don't always get the information that we need. We often find out the benefits and we apply them in sicker populations in the real world don't translate into what we saw in the in the randomized trials. So I'll just... Not so much of an issue here, I'd say, with this study. Because not at all. Because they're randomizing the level of the school. And then the children in the school are sort of assumed to sort of go along with whatever the school has decided to do. I agree. Do. And this was a very applied trial. This was not a, a, a tightly controlled uh, clinical trial like you'd have for a drug trial. And actually, to get back to something that you said a little bit earlier, Which makes Matt, it more generalizable. Me? Something I said? Something you said. This is going um, to be brilliant. They, they actually did take into consideration um, what the teachers learned. They did. And, yep. they, and, they, and they, um, they factored that into the analysis. So I, th- I think that they actually heard you ahead of time and, and, uh, and dealt with that. That's nice. It's yeah. nice when people listen to me retrospectively. All right. Uh, so that's, I think, all we have to say. And Chris probably didn't have much to say anyway on generalizability. Risk we hadn't taken on that topic. So we'll just move on. To our last and final segment, our amazing and amusing, where we want to highlight some of the things that, as we said, make us enjoy our jobs even more. The weird and wacky things that Don loves to the things that Chris says that I have to go and Google when we get back home. I actually have one that relates to the paper that we just described. Well, then you get to go first. I get to go first. All right. So this is an an article um, that was published in a journal that I'd never heard of called Judgment and Decision Making. Oh, yeah. No, that's a good one. By Pennycock, Chain, Barr, Kohler, and Fugelsang. Judgment and Decision? Judgment and Decision Making. Judgment and Decision Making. Yeah. Published in uh, 2015. Um, And the title of the article is On the Reception and Detection of Pseudoprofound BS. That is our theme. I know. I know. I, I thought it was just Baloney, really malarkey. prophetic. Hooey. Hooey. Malarkey. Um, and so what they wanted to do was they wanted to determine 
whether pseudo-profound BS, pseudo-profound, which they define in a very particular way. uh, And would the definition be this podcast? Uh, It could be. Yep. Could be. What what they did is they, they they took words that were that appeared to have a level of meaningfulness. And they arrange made, made up words or real words. Real words. Oh, and they arranged them in ways that were that made syntactic sense, but the but the sentence itself really made no sense <laughs> whatsoever. And kind of like Chris's Randy experiment, they they asked people to f- to comment on whether they were meaningful or not. And it's, I thought it was it was really interesting because they used um, as an example a tweet. That was put out by Deepak Chopra, and his tweet was: "Attention and intention are the mechanics of manifestation." <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's profound. What, what does wait, that wait, mean? Wait, 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 wait. Also, uh, the, the, this 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 it's... concept of prof, of pseudo profound BS has also um, been termed woo woo nonsense. <laughs> So anyway, anyway, so they, 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 they conducted a series of experiments where they tried to correlate people's acceptance of the pseudo-profound BS with particular personality traits. Who has the time for this? <laughs> I know, I know. Oh. And so they did a series of, of experiments. And uh, to, to make a long story short, they came up with a number of personality characteristics that seemed to be associated with a high level of acceptance of pseudo-profound BS. Okay. Um, And one of them was, uh, they called it BS receptivity. (laughs) And um, they found that people who were less reflective Mm -hmm. tended to be, have a high BS receptivity, Mm -hmm. had lower cognitive ability, either verbal or or, uh, numeracy, Okay. Um, had conspiratorial ideation. Yep, I'm in there. Uh, and had higher religiosity and belief in paranormal. Um, and they were more likely to endorse complimentary and alternative medicines. Oh yeah, doesn't surprise so, me. So they that the, is the, fantastic. The, the, their, <laughs> their their final their final comment in this paper was that there tends to be um, an association. Um, in acceptance of pseudo-profound BS with those who have an open mind, but they say, but not so open that your brains fall out. Yeah, you got to be careful about that. (laughs) You definitely got to be careful about that. It's it's a keeper. That is fantastic. That's good stuff. That's fantastic. Chris, what do you got for us? Sure. Um, This is a a paper uh, that um, was published just recently and got some press in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Science called Buying Time Promotes Happiness Buying by time. Willens, W-H-I-L-L-A-N-S, and colleagues. Uh, and I, Good know, thing I, you spelled that for us. <laughs> I was sitting at the soccer field last uh, last night, and I was chatting with one of my... Was my there a soccer game going soccer on? Or were you just... friends there, um, who is a uh, professor at a different university in town, and was commenting on the fact that she just got all her groceries delivered by Amazon and was so... Happy, and she was so happy. She bought so free time. Happy because she bought free time, right? And because we've all been taught that you know time equals money, but money doesn't equal happiness. But what these are, these researchers have done 
in using meta-analysis, no less, uh, was to show that, in fact, sometimes money does equal happiness, but it depends on how you spend the money. And so that if you, they, they did this um, meta-analysis where they looked at observational studies equating uh, quality of life indices with how you spent disposable income and whether you spent it on, like, paying someone to rake the leaves as opposed to going out and buying some fancy object. And there was a consistent effect that people's sort of happiness indices would go down when they bought things as opposed to when they bought free time because you didn't have to rake the leaves. And then they did a little randomized control trial because they were skeptical of observational studies and, and they found mm. the same effect, that they gave people $40 and they were instructed to either spend it on a thing or spend it on paying someone to do something for you that you don't want to do. And then oh. they measured their quality of life and it you know, trended up in each case. It was I, I, quite I, a cool little study, I thought. I and think it resonated. It, it really resonated with you, it, right? it rang true, shall we say. No, I think, I think that this really brings us back to the whole concept of, of generalizability because I would imagine that the effect for this particular phenomenon would be much more pronounced in the top 1% or the top 0.1% yeah. and much less pronounced in the lower 80% people who don't really have time to purchase I don't know I, I could see it being that. the opposite that if you that if you were if you were it seems like it seems like it's a phenomenon of the was, idle rich or the non-idle rich uh, oh, I, don't I don't know, know. It could I, be I don't, a, the phenomenon of people who work hard and have no time. Yeah, you know that. that, yeah. that or what about people? What about people that have a lot of time but they 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 just that they, they 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 don't they don't value that time as much so they're not willing to spend precious money to purchase more time because they've got a lot of excess time. Well, some people just enjoy working hard. I don't know who they are, but apparently, yeah, I've never met one. Some people really enjoy it. They certainly don't exist here. It's no, school public they health. do not. They do not. <laughs> what you got for us, Matt? This one I got from the from the internet, so you can uh, you can assume that it probably. Uh, I can't verify. I can't vouch for it, but um, this is one of those things that when we get. Comments back from reviewers on our manuscript. We often, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I occasionally write things in response to the reviewers and then I delete them because they are. <laughs> Very often. They are uh, things that I, I never not say. You mean you get unkind things said to you by reviewers? I get unkind things said and occasionally I say unkind things back <laughs> that I, uh, I don't ever hit the send button and on. And sometimes they're frankly nasty. And <laughs> hopefully I have deleted before I ever actually hit the resubmit button. Knuckle scraping, is that one of those words? So this is, this is one... <laughs> This is one that I can only assume was never never actually sent, but was put out there uh, on the internet as a one of those this things. This is a reviewer's comment to a paper that letters, was sent. No, no, no. Never sent. This is this is a letter never sent in response to a reviewer's comment. Oh, okay. Okay, and this is this is after uh, presumably more than one revision of the paper. This is the thing we would want to say, but we don't actually ever say because we know it will get us into big trouble. So it says, "We hope you will be pleased with this revision." and will finally recognize how urgently deserving of publication this work is. If not, then you are an unscrupulous, depraved monster with no shred of human decency. You, <laughs> you ought to be in a cage. If you do accept it, however, we wish to thank you for your patience and wisdom throughout this process and to express our appreciation for your scholarly insights. To repay you, we would be happy to review some manuscripts for you. Please send us the next manuscript to any, that any of these reviewers submits to this journal. Those things that you wish you could say, but you never would. A little too pandering at the end. I think he should have gone full bore. Yeah, agreed. So that is uh, the end of our program. If you have any feedback on this or any other episodes, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at PopHealthEx. That's at PopHealthEx. So we're 
constantly looking for ways to improve the podcast. And to do that, we have set up a survey that we hope you'll go to and let us know what you think. So the survey you can find is at pophealthyx.org slash FA, or you can just go to the pophealthyx.org website and find our page and we'll have a link to it there. We hope you'll go on there and give us your honest feedback so that we can make this podcast even better. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you download our next episode. Mm-hmm.